Hi, you're listening to Andrew Farris on NXS Access All Areas with Hayden and B. Check it out. This is In Excess Access All Areas, the podcast that is helping to get In Excess into the Rock Hall of Fame. But we need your help. We need you to share and send the love out. We need to create momentum and make some noise together and get In Excess nominated into the Rock Hall of Fame where they deserve to be. We have a fabulous patron program with lots of rewards, starting from as little as $5 all the way up to $30. Starting with the bronze, you will get a mention each week elevating to a silver you will be able to enter the competition gold will give you further invites into our zoom chats which are awesome or you could become one of our amazing platinum members and get early uploads and a lot more and if you can email in excess aaagmail.com your address we will send you out a welcome pack thank you enjoy Hello, welcome to NXS Access All Areas, episode 32, the podcast B, where we dive deep on this great band NXS, get them into the Rock Hall of Fame, have fun, educate thousands, maybe millions one day, and uh, hello, how are you? Hello, I am very excited that you've got your microphone fixed for this one. Well, we used the old turn it on, turn it off uh, therapy <laughs> treatment, didn't we? We did. I think I said pre- try it. <laughs> I, I think I said in our 25-second production meeting before this episode <laughs> that uh, my IT guy at work, you know, he's famous for like, have you tried turning it off? <laughs> he just uh, needs a little rest. It was yeah. all that ranting you've been doing, maybe. Yeah, all those... Right all those Trouble spotters, you know, uh, IT support people around the world. Have you tried turning it on, turning it off? <laughs> yeah, try that. And it worked. Yeah. Yay. Anyone got a donut? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I, I always like to start by saying, how has your In Excess week been, B? Very good. Thank you. There's been lots of going on again. I can't wait for you to talk about news because there's quite a bit of a war going on there, isn't there? And a yep. few, few yep. things going on. Um, I've got a nice little story about a bag of onions. Oh, hmm. make it interesting. How can a bag of onions uh, be topical? Go for it. Okay. Do you remember me talking about um, a guy called Gary Lilly last week? Is that the British guy? Or was the that Brit- from that- Newcastle? Oh, hang on. That's the guy in the uh, clip. Uh, with Paula and Michael yeah, on the big breakfast. that's right. Yes, that's yes, right. yes. So he's got a story. He's going right. to come out with a few of these stories, and this one's quite fun. Okay, so they'd had a big night. Everybody in excess, that is. They'd had a big night. Everyone gone to bed, and there was just these two guys and Michael. And they got the munchies. So oh. they, off they went to the kitchen mm. uh, to find out that the, the fridge was actually locked. So they tried to unpick it and there was, they couldn't unpick it, but they found a case. They unpicked the case and um, they just munched on the sweets. 
fell asleep. Is this Michael and the two guys or just the My, two guys? Michael and the two guys. Right, okay. Right? So there's Michael and the two guys munching on the sweets. And then they decided to fall asleep on, you know, those metal, what they call the metal benches in the kitchens. Mm. Anyway, they, they woke up a little bit a few hours later. The, the sink. sink. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> they woke right. up a few hours later and uh, they couldn't find Michael. And then they noticed a pair of Doc Martens and a pair of socks just coming out of this cupboard. And they opened the cupboard and there's Michael wrapped in his fur coat. You can just imagine him, can't you? Fur coat, Doc Martens hanging out the cupboard and um, fast asleep <laughs> on a couple of bag of onions. <laughs> oh. So what did they do? They're so, they're so bad, these boys. What did they do? They nicked his hotel key card and went up to his um went up to his hotel room and they left Michael on the bag of onions and they went to sleep in his bed. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say they opened up the cup and there was Mike on a bag of onions with a supermodel. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that night. <laughs> uh, uh. Well, uh yes, I guess in terms of uh, that story, it would have had to be in there to absolutely uh, fall off your chair, but I could imagine that <laughs> happening. Even what Nick said about Michael being woken up and flown to Hong Kong and going, how did I get here? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it, it went on. He, he got he, the um, the hotel staff found Michael. He, he got himself together and managed to remember um, what room number he was, went in, kicked the door down and, like, went, it met all the lads. And, um, and surely, being British, they would have raided the minibar and all that. Oh stuff. yeah, they're bad boys, <laughs> bad right. boys. But yeah. they they had fun. They yeah. had fun. So yeah. just thought I'd share that story. No problems. Well, look, we're coming off an episode last week, 31, where we sort of diverted off the tangent line a little bit of in excess and spoke about the Max Q album. And uh, we're going to dive a bit deeper today. But um, I guess, you know, after putting that out last week, B, we did get some good responses from people who I think went down memory lane in hearing some of those songs again. And, you know, for David Gaunt, um, I know for Pedro, I know for, for Lisa McIntosh, I think Lisa Urban, I think for Danielle. Uh, a lot of those people are patrons, you know, it, it, some of their uh, shared stories online, you know, mirrored ours. I mean, they were real fans of Concrete and, you know, a, a real fan of that album and holds a special place in their hearts, like us, I guess. Yeah, uh, it was lovely, actually, because we've got that super group page. Um, yep. David um, posted his collection. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was wow. looking at that today. I was thinking, gee, that's, um, you know, here I am thinking, uh, well, I'm a bit of a fan of that, but that's that's real fandom. That's uber fandom. <laughs> that is, that is. Yeah, um, yeah I think uh, the, the overriding sort of themes from the week was just people's appreciation for the album. And look, we are in a sort of a semi-biased type of niche, you know, uh, podcast audience, but... Um, again, I think as you and I both sort of have proven over time is that, you know, there are some songs we don't like and there maybe are some performances or eras of the band where uh, some are stronger than others and we call it as we see it. I think there was sort of universal love and praise for Max Q, which is uh, particularly encouraging sort of 31 years later. Yes, you're right there. Universal praise. Um, there was a very special person actually that contacted me via Twitter. Oh. A great guy um, from the UK. Quite um, it's big big celebrity over there. I think he was called something Juice Celebrity right. Juice, and um, his name is Keith Lemon. I'm sure a few people out there know him. And he's a mad in excess fan, and he loved 
um, listening. When you've to mentioned his name before, I, it conjures up the prodigy meets you too. Keith is in Keith Flint, yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, Lemon is in the song by you too. I was there over, so I yeah. get that image in my mind. Anyway, he's listening in. So hi, Keith. <laughs> I just had a very karmic moment when I was thinking a moment ago. This is pretty scary. I didn't realize this till now. Hmm. We, our episode last week was number 31 and Max Q was released 31 years ago. Oh, That's a bit spooky, isn't it? That's a bit spooky. Hello, Michael. Hi, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, uh, it's just an uncanny coincidence that is, but um, you know, for those who think we engineered that one, that is not, uh, (laughs) that is not our planning at all. It's funny how these things go, though, isn't it? They do Correct. seem to Absolutely. Uh, puzzle pieces. Now, we always like to welcome our well-earned and, and well-contributing uh, patrons to uh, the podcast. Um, uh, I went out for dinner this week with a good friend of mine called Gibbo, who, uh, upon leaving the Greek restaurant, he said, oh, by the way, I want to become a patron. What do I have to do? I said, just open your wallet. <laughs> Keep listening. <laughs> um but uh, we hung out the other night, actually, we went for some grief and you go, geez, I feel like I've been hanging out with you for the last three, four days. I've just listened to five, six of your episodes. I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing it's, to say to you. <laughs> it's quite funny, actually. A lot of people have been listening to us. Right. Like, okay. like, like saying, can you not do some more? And you're joking, aren't you? You can just about fit these ones in. But yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I also want to say, you don't have to become a patron to help us. No. We, If you go onto Podbeam or even ask me if you want to, there We've got a PayPal account that you can just donate as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Look, every dollar helps. You know, it just gets reinvested into sort of uh, putting this whole thing together and and getting the word out and prize packs and materials and you know programs and books and prizes and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I've got uh, some new prizes actually, Hayden. Okay, maybe maybe in the comp section we can go through that because that might be uh, very exciting for some of the uh, the listeners. If it's anywhere near as good as Carmen's pillow, I'll be excited. My son was using the pillow today, and it's oh. funny. I got protective. I go, hey, that's my pillow. <laughs> I was like, true story. I was like, yeah. no, no. you know, the kids, kids take every, you know, pillow, you know, blanket, you know, cushion in the house. I go, hey, no one messes with the what's – that, <laughs> no. what's that line in Dirty Dancing? No one puts baby in the corner. No one's messed with Hayden's <laughs> pillow. <laughs> Oh, God, I'm doing third person, so okay. Oh, um, gosh. <laughs> anyway. Well, mine's sitting on my chair, anyway, my gotta, rocking chair. <laughs> correct, correct. We're going to welcome the patrons, okay? I'd like to say hello to everybody outside on the highway. Let's all say hello to everybody outside. It's about 10,000 people at least. Hello. All right, big hello to Pedro, Lisa Urban, Lisa Mack, Lisa Calloway. Uh, we got Foxy, Felicia, Sarah, Laurie, Carmen, Sudi, Matt Dean, Joe Robbins, Mandy, Linda, Anne-Marie, Danielle, and we have Ali Lore, we have Kathy, Carrie-Anne, Virginia, Vern, Caroline, David Gaunt, and Amanda. Before we read out our intro, B, I was just going to mention a little bit about today. We've got episode 32. It's going to be sort of our part two, uh, delving deeper into sort of what Max Q meant at the time, uh, what it meant in terms of uh, responses critically, com- commercially, um, you know, just how it stacks up 30, 31 years later. And also, to a bit of the controversy around it. You know, it was a, 
an album that I think when addressed in the miniseries and uh, in story to story and different sort of interviews as well, it was a potential wedge between sort of what Chris saw the band, you know, becoming and what Michael was aiming to sort of do with this album. And, you know, we want to explore a bit of that because, you know, it wasn't smooth sailing at the time. And uh, I'd like to dive deeper into that and also open up for, for listeners and, and contributors to, to share their memories about that because I think it got sort of almost self-sabotaged in a way by management without maybe not meaning to self-sabotage in the sense of preventing from being successful. But, you know, uh, the fact that it doesn't exist 31 years later in terms of retail purchasing and, and being remastered and all different things and given it a life, would say to me it hasn't been a priority for in excess management uh, to support mm. post Michael's passing. So take that more as a comment, not so much a you know a, an opinion. I think it's just a, a fair reality of the facts, B. Yes, you're right because it's something that's talked about a fair bit in um, in all the fan pages I see mm. and uh, read. And um, I really do think management and in excess should push to get it released. To tell you the truth, yeah. it's not even upon iTunes. Yeah. Yeah. What's the time? Now it's time for the news. Hi, it's Carmen here from Wollongong, Australia. You're listening to the world's best in excess podcast, in excess access all areas, and now it's time for the news. All right, Bea, a little bit of sad positive news with uh, News of the Week. Uh, it is now official, but in excess is uh, diamond accredited, very best of, is officially out of the top 50. It's happened once since we started this podcast. It may may do a re-entry based on a little bit of news we'll talk about a bit later, but it wasn't in the top 50 last week. So the week that that we uh, sort of went and put uh, the podcast out, it slipped out, but maybe by the time of this being released, it may go back in. Hopefully with a little bit of uh, positive uh, press this week about its diamond accreditation it will uh, have a rebound yeah. uh, but that is at least officially as of sort of December uh, I guess around the oh, what is it probably around the 5th it was out of the ARIA charts but uh, we will put a call out there to the vast echelons of everyone around Australia and the world go and buy it especially if you're in Australia because it affects the charts here. Uh, and uh, if you've got two copies, get a third. If you've got a third, get a fourth. Have one for the car, one for the house, one for the boat, one for the TV room. You know, you never have enough. It's like <laughs> no, remote controls. Yeah. You can have four or five of them, can't you, Pedro? <laughs> yeah. Also, to this week, uh, I had a little bit of a Twitter difference of opinion with someone this week, B. And uh, in one way, he really? was Really? Right. You? Yes. Are you joking? Well, well look, you know, in one Excuse way, he me. was... Well, in in one way he was right, but in reality he was wrong. <laughs> so let let me let me let me play devil devil's advocate if I can. Um, there has been a little bit of feedback about Inexcess being nominated for a Grammy this week. Now, nobody in the world more than myself would love and you for Inexcess to get their fourth Grammy nomination. Uh, Dua Lipa, who we've talked a lot about on the podcast, uh, her album Future Nostalgia is up for Best Album of the Year, and she has a couple of songs, well, a song off that album that's up for Song of the Year. Uh, but it's not the song that uh, I think what's break my heart or whatever. It's not that particular one that is sampling Need You Tonight. Ah. So I know Andrew this particular week put out a little bit of a post saying, well done to, you know, Flame, sorry, Flume, <laughs> Flame, Flume and Tame Impala for their Grammy nominations. And, uh, you know, for uh, he said something like yours truly for being connected. Uh, I guess was probably the word. And that's what's actually occurred. In Excess is connected 
to the Grammy for Album of the Year, but they're not got an, a band nomination or Andrew and Michael don't get a nomination themselves. They're connected to the album of the year with one song on an album that's been nominated. So it is a bit semantics, but it is reality. You're not going to see their names called out as uh, songwriters and it hasn't been listed as songwriters on the official Grammy nominations page. Um, so it's, it is a sort of distinction, but it's the difference between, you know, uh, being nominated and actually not being nominated. So it is significant mm-hmm. to sort of explain to people yeah. out there. Yeah. Okay. Right? Thanks for explaining that. Yeah. Thank now, you. if that song had been nominated for Song of the Year, yes, they would get a Grammy nomination because they were contributors towards the the sound and the you know the rhythm of that particular song. But the song itself's not nominated, so that's probably why again yeah. they're not nominated. Okay. Uh, also, this week, I know B, you've been sort of plugging a couple of weeks ago the new edition of Rolling Stone, which is the top sort of fifty Australian artists of all time. I can feel a rant coming along here, B. I I, I was on a uh, one of our sort of uh, well, not our platforms, but someone else's, and I don't know if there's a ranking ranking in there, but from my understanding, is it right that ACDC one, Sia two, Kylie Minogue three, In Excess four or five or something like? That, there's like a ranking for the greatest artists of all time? Yeah, we came, uh, we, (laughs) they came in at four. For the listeners out here, this is the Australian edition of Rolling Stone. They've ranked the top 50 Australian artists. Now, what defies logic there is that we've got someone like Kylie who's never written really a song in her life other than a a B-side for her her sister Danny's uh, debut single uh, being rated as the number two Australian artist of all time. I mean, many years ago, B. Okay, I know you like flicking through the magazine, but look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm, lo- I'm looking. Why is Kylie number three? But I am listening to him. Number two, see you. I mean, he was number two. Right, right. that's quite good. That's in, quite in, good. In but late, yeah, you're right. In really? the late 70s, early 80s, there was a burn your disco album movement in America. Now, a lot of our American audiences may know of that, whereas I think a DJ in one of the towns, maybe in Chicago, said, okay, everybody, come down to such and such baseball stadium and we're going to burn all the disco CDs or t- uh, records at the time. I felt today, like when I heard that, <laughs> let's have a mass gathering and burn the Rolling Stone edition because how on earth? I mean, they've got Nick Cave at five below Kylie. I mean, I mean, Nick's Kylie's mentor almost. Like, you know, the ranking is just absurd. And we know we're all in excess sycophants and things like that, but how they could have someone like Kylie... You know, as a uh, an artist, musician, you know, you know, greatest ahead of all these other luminaries here. Nice just to know. Lacking incredibility. Now, don't go defend Kylie. You got that look on your face. Oh, 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 oh no, 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 no. <laughs> I hand the ball to you. You respond. I'd like to know why it how they've ranked it. Is it record sales? Maybe. No. Well, no. it's just a. Sh- yeah, I don't. Know. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. So. No, I don't get so, it. Either. You know, favoritism. Rolling, Rolling huh? What do you call <laughs> it? Favoritism. No, it's just like Look, Rolling Stone was an iconic publication, but I reckon in about 1992 it lost its relevance, especially when it gave Welcome to Wherever You Are a two out of five rating, but that's an aside. Okay. <laughs> the reality is that uh, don't go buy this publication because it's just drivel. It's just a couple of geeks. You can't say that. Uh, it's a couple of geeks in, a, in an office who have never played an inch in their life are trying to tell the world that someone like Sia or Kylie is more important to the Australian music industry than in excess midnight oil, crowded house, split ends, hunters and collectors, hoodoo gurus. I mean, it's just, it, you know, it just defies common sense. So I'm not even going to dignify it with a, a further justification. That's my rant. A live rant today, B. It is, yeah. You've knocked me off my 
box now because off my box <laughs> okay. you've knocked me sideways because okay. i've got two i've got two copies to give away well nobody's you know gonna want it now give them away Thanks. so they can burn them and post it that <gasps> <laughs> oh, was so bad yeah well, yeah. well I when, was gonna- when mr opitz comes onto our podcast and we're going to refer to him as mr opitz sir, okay. sir mark opitz okay He's our George Martin. Okay. When Mr. Opitz comes onto this podcast, we're going to ask him about that list and just see what he thinks because I think oh, he yeah. would be mm-hmm. livid with the list. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Moving along with a couple more things in the news. Okay. Uh, Andrew has announced a tour. Did you know that, B? Yes. Yeah. March <laughs> next year, you're looking guilty. That was a lie. I can tell you. <laughs> You know I know when you're lying? Do you know when I know when you're lying? Okay, your, lips, your lips are moving. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's an oldie bit of goodie. But, look, Andrew is touring and he's playing at Lizotte's uh, in March. And is he? That, yeah, Newcastle. I better get a ticket. You better get a ticket. They go on sale uh, very, very soon. And it's, I think, a national tour, more intimate venues, I guess, as they say. So, with Hello, Mr. Lizotte's, by the way. Post COVID or you know ending COVID, they're probably you know restricted sort of seatings and things. So mm-hmm. if you are keen, uh, I would definitely be sort of involved on that. I saw Andrew with a, a Santa hat on and all his merch the other I day. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're getting to that in the media wars, B. <laughs> but it is that time now every week where we play. And now it's time for the bittersweet symphony of the In Excess Media Wars. All right, B, Media Wars, it's hotted up. We've had two weeks away from Media Wars. I can't wait to talk about it, okay? We have had, you know, I know I know it's coming up to Christmas and we and we know at Easter time a certain bearded gentleman two and twenty years ago reappeared resurrected but the name john farris has got off the mark in meteors b oh okay. yeah, only only just thought no on. john's uh john's okay just, his photo john in cricket terms has hit one through the covers for four okay <laughs> in in american terms he's put one out of the park <laughs> John has appeared in an article in Byron Bay, okay, s- supporting the very oh. well-suited cause, okay, of uh, wildlife animals. There's actually up there a mobile hospital, a mobile hospital for injured wildlife in the Byron Bay area, and John's been out there plugging that particular mobile truck and sending out a message, pardon the pun, uh, to uh, encourage and support and contribute and donate, and it's been a sort of a very successful enterprise, and with all of our bushfires and, and sort of uh, fauna and flora uh, hits in the last few few months and years, it's definitely a, uh, a worthy cause. Yeah. Um, and I know that particular article sort of went all around uh, the world. And uh, I think they've raised something like about, uh, well, I think nearly about $700,000 in donations. So oh, well, well done, done to everyone there and John for supporting that. Yeah, okay, but good one. But in Media Wars, John, you're off the mark. We you welcome are you off next. the mark. Yeah, we could do with a bit <laughs> more, please. Now, <laughs> it was literally a day later, right? This is true, okay? After one day of this article coming out, okay, who happened to appear on 2GB for a 21-minute interview? Kirk. He's popped out, okay? He's gone, John. He can't I help s- himself, can I he? See you. I see you, John, and I'm going to raise you too. Not only has he gone out and done his interview, it's been on for 21 minutes, okay? 21. Uh, on no. 
sorry, 2GB, which is a, a big radio station up in New South Wales. Maybe it will help the band get the album back in the charts because it's got a massive uh, listening audience. But uh, Kirky, Can't Be Outdone, has gone to the lead in media awards, uh, uh, media um, uh, awards and uh, profile. Then we had, obviously, the announcement of Andrew's tour, which is sort of, I guess... Uh, you know, getting out in the media, but also Andrew sort of put out his little Santa hat post and encouraged the Grammy Award, you know, oh. nominees and a little bit of, uh, you know, I'm connected to the Grammy. So, Andrew, you got a little bit of bit of media hang time there. Okay, so, Andrew. cuteness going on here oh, well, with little you know. cuddly animals and cuddly uh, Andrew Well, well maybe there'll be a Facebook page for, for Andrew's uh, Santa hat. I know there's one for his actual hat. <laughs> right. That's cruel. Thank you, no. Laurie. But the big one for the week was, uh, I think, a couple of days ago on uh, Channel 7, okay, Sunrise, uh, which has probably been the biggest advocate of NXS stuff. I thought Koshi would be on, but he might be on annual leave. But uh, Samantha Armitage and uh, Matt Doran were hosting uh, Sunrise that morning. And uh, they had Tim on talking about the uh, Diamond accreditation, got handed the award. But who reached out and grabbed the award before Tim could touch it? Kirk. <laughs> Kirk had slipped onto the couch. Tim looked rather shocked. Kirk was, jumped on. I don't think Tim was awake, really, was he? Tim looked like he had sort of a, a Bex or a Mogadon and a, and uh, a, the night before. I, I think but, makeup uh, had been in, but hair definitely hadn't been in. Yes, but uh, anyway. this was a bit of a <laughs> six-minute interview. I know Carmen filmed herself watching it and posting it on one of our, our platforms. Thank you, Carmen. Uh, but I guess on a more serious note, it was good to actually, and I must say this about Kirk. Kirk explains the band really well. You know, he, he explains and, and, you know, recounts Michael, you know, well in that this particular interview and he recounts sort of what made the band successful and why they sort of strived and things like that and, and also why they paused in 2012 and sort of essentially stopped touring and things. So it did open up some of those interesting areas. Um, the only slight negative is is just, you know, the, the lack of research by sort of the media um, department of Channel 7. They, they put down 12 studio albums. That's actually not quite right. They did 10 with Michael and they did one with uh, JD, so that's 11. You know, if you're counting compilations and reissues and re- reimaginings, well, you know, it'd be 20 albums. But, but in terms of official new material, you know, it's, it's actually 11 total studio albums. They also said 70 million sales, which I don't think is quite right. They hit 50 million about three years ago and there's been rumours they're up to 55 or 60. I think it's more around the 55 mark. Um, but going to 70, I think it has legs on it, you know, or hairs on it, as they say. I don't think that's quite right. But look, overall, anytime the band gets promoted on mainstream daytime TV anywhere around the world, I say thank you to Channel 7 for doing that. Yeah, thank you, Channel 7. Um, It was nice that um, I think it was Tim that said, they they asked him what would Michael think, and he says he'd be really happy because he wanted it it to matter. It's Mm. a shame that he didn't realise that it was mattering. I think that was really good. You know, I think Mm. even Nick expressed it and I guess we can touch upon it more on, you know, in our topic today, but uh, Nick said basically most lead singers are generally insecure people. And um, Mm. I think I remember Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins a few years ago when he was asked a bit about In Excess and he was dating one of the the, um, singers from the Veronica's Australian sort of duo sister act. But he was talking about In Excess and he said, you know, I really think, you know, I wish Mike was around and he was great. Um, he, I think they played Send a Message or Need You Tonight cover version at one of the Pumpkins concerts around about the time Michael passed. 
I think even on the Adore album from the Smashing Pumpkins, one of the songs on there was dedicated to Michael. And I think I remember in this, you know, recounting of Billy meeting Michael and telling the stories, he said, yeah, I could tell that he just, you know, he, he, he seemed like a guy that, you know, I was unsure of himself, but maybe sort of, um, you know, just, you know, questioning their relevance nowadays and feeling a bit insecure about where the band were at and a few different things. And I think, you know, we've spoken about what happened at the Brit Music Awards. We won't go into it again today, but a lot of these little things when you, you've climbed the mountain, it's really hard to stay on top of the mountain. Yeah. And, you know, Tim, in that interview, you're right. He said, you know, you did matter, Michael. You know, if mm. you could just pop down now essentially and see, you know, your legacy still. Yeah. Um, and even again, Channel 7, they said 22 years. It was 23 years. I'm okay. We're, yeah. we're nitpicking, but... You know, if Michael was here today and could see the love and the legacy, well, you know, it's just it's so sad that it's he's not. Con- but It's just continuing and continuing. Yeah. Um, I've got a little bit yep. to say, actually. So just to tie in what I said about that I've got two copies of the Rolling Stone magazine, I'd like to give them away. If you go back and watch that interview, Kirk mentions the year that him and Tim met. So mm. the first person who can email the podcast in excess aaa gmail.com.au with the year. You pronounce the word year different the way that we say it. In Australia, we yeah. say year. You yeah. say yaw. Yeah. So if yeah. you are of the Antipodean background, which is Australia, okay. Year. And you say yaw. Yaw. In the year. So we'll probably try to get in the middle. Year. So I have to pronounce it differently now. No. This is Danielle from Pensacola, Florida. And now, topic of the week. Alright B, part two of Max Q, we're going to dive deep into a lot of the scuttlebug, a lot of the rumour innuendo, a lot of the fact, uh, the factual threads that we can sort of extrapolate on and just talk a little bit about what was going on when this album came out and just the inner dynamics between sort of Chris, Michael, the rest of the band, uh, the public's uh, receptiveness to this album. Uh, and flush it out after what we did last week, which was play the songs that um, many people out there hadn't heard and many people rejoiced in again who had heard them. How are you anyway? Mm. Looking forward to uh, diving deep into this one with you again. Yeah, well, look, I thought I'd start off just with a little bit of the uh, critical acclaim on this album. I know art versus commerce is a bit of a theme for this episode. Mm. And um, I did a little bit of research and I do remember as a youngster at the time uh, when this album was uh, acknowledged at the end of, oh, I guess the end of 89, 1990, Rolling Stone put out their uh, awards for the year, uh, especially in Australia. So Rolling Stone is a publication that goes internationally, but each country or major country has its own sort of uh, publication. Now, just so you're aware, B, if you're not, the album was released in September 1989. Now, this was actually, from a reader's poll point of view, that came through sort of the Rolling Stone Australian magazine, won 13 Rolling Stone magazine awards. 
It's pretty oh, cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and look, I'll read them out to you because there's a couple Great. of interesting ones in here. From the readers poll that particular year, mm-hmm. it won best single for Way of the World. So, nah, 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 nah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I knew you'd have delight in saying that. I know, that. I know. <laughs> Jim, Jim's with me on that one, Dr. Jim. Uh, it won best singer for Michael Hutchins. It won best new artist that I think Michael laughed at the time because he was 10 years into his career, but Max Q were a new entity. It won... Uh, best video for Way of the World, which uh, well justified. It was an awesome clip and still is. Best album cover, uh, which uh, we do know our friend Nick Egan, friend of the show, yeah. really helped put together, which had Very some good. of those you know, themes around that sort of 1984 George Orwell S thing. And I've actually got some etchings of that that I'll uh, publish later. Etchings is such a British word, isn't it? It's a great word, isn't it? We, we would say scribbles or drawings. Etchings. <laughs> Down here. But... Um, but yeah, so it. Um, but yeah, I think that sort of George Orwell, Bowie Station Station was a bit of an influence on the album cover. So one uh, best album cover, best dance, twelve inch dance track for sometimes well justified. Mm-hmm. But then obviously outside the readers poll, they have a critics poll. Uh, one best single for Way of the World from the critics. Best heavy metal artist. What? <laughs> yes, best heavy metal artist. That I think Michael. The, yeah, best because look, it was a fusion of sounds. There were a couple of you know cacophonic type sounds on it, but it was not heavy metal. No. That probably gets back to sometimes people not being able to categorise music properly or over categorising it. Uh, Michael oh. did have a, a chuckle at the time about that one. It won best again, best new artist as a, from a critical point of view, best video way of the world. Best drummer, John Murphy from Max Q. Best dance, 12 inch from Sometimes from the Critics. And artist of the year, Michael Hutchins, uh, which was which was pretty cool. So, you know, from that sort of perspective there, Michael didn't go into this with, I think, commercial inklings. He went in it from a real artistic point of view. And um, I guess he, I know at the time and, and Post, was very pleased just how well it had been received by, you know, fans, but also probably importantly, the critics, which... Sometimes got stuck into him, just, you know, saw him as a pretty face. I guess I thought I'd just really like to share that with those uh, people, particularly from overseas who who didn't get the Rolling Stones sort of publications around sort of 1989, 1990, that it was very well um, regarded, not only in that magazine, but also from critics around the world who reviewed it. Yeah, good credits. And uh, well-researched there, young man. No problems, no problems. The, The power of Google and the power of memory. So let's just look at this album in a, in a little bit of its sort of uh, its guise and luster. I mean, doing a little bit of back research and, and again, going off memory a bit, you know, Michael really went into this particular uh, year off after sort of the, the juggernaut of kick, really wanting, I think, to exercise, you know, creative control in many ways. And I guess a band by sheer, you know, definition is a collection of, of musicians and with Excess having six of them, it is ultimately a democracy to some point. There has to be rivalries when it comes to song contributions to albums. There has to be rivalries in terms of what's omitted, lyrical contributions, you know, other band members saying, I don't like that, or let's stay within these, you know, the flags. You know, so I think when Michael was, was, was teaming up with Ollie, um, he was really, really keen, I think, just to be able to exercise as much creative control, not for the sake of being controlling, but just wanting to pursue an artistic vision that this particular album uh, afforded him the chance to do. I guess pairing up with someone like Ollie, who was very Melbourne, was very uh, much, you know, loved and revered in the underground scene and sort of a lot of the dance scene, 
he had a sort of a, a partner in crime that could help sort of create a vision. And I think, you know, reading a lot of the backdrop on it and at the time, they really were peas in a pod. You know, this album got recorded. A lot of the album was recorded in Melbourne, but as listeners will find out a bit later, a lot of it was recorded in LA and, and written mm-hmm. there. A lot of it was then recorded in, in New York. And we've mentioned on previous episodes, B, that In Excess only really recorded one song in America. But Michael, I guess, with his album, probably recorded a lot more uh, in America, which hit me between the eyes when I was doing my research. I thought, oh, that's right. I remember, you know, he was in New York doing some stuff, but um, he really embraced, you know, a bit of an international flavour in sound and in places to record B. Yeah, yeah. I think Nick will touch on a little bit of that later. Yeah, absolutely. look back to this era and let's just look at sort of you know 1989 Queen a few years earlier had gone through some struggles where Freddie wanted to go solo and there's I guess in the Bohemian Rhapsody movie that was quite highlighted that it was a bit of a a failure you know uh, for Freddie and um, I guess you look at Mick Jagger you know who went solo you know between some troubles you know in the Stones and things and did a couple of albums etc there you know looking back at the time I think Chris Chris Murphy that is felt threatened by this album in a way and threatened by the choices that Michael was sort of doing to go out and record something like this and I think look we're not there we're not there to sort of cast historical opinion and it's easy in hindsight to be sort of you know judgmental but understanding Michael and and everything we got to know about him over the journey it struck me a lot that Michael is being a fiercely loyal guy I think Nick you know, touches upon it, that there was no threat that Michael was leaving in excess. Uh, Michael has been quoted in interviews going, the easiest way to break up a band is don't let people go off and do what they want to do in between albums. And that's actually on record of Michael saying it. And I think, you know, in hindsight, it was a bit of a calculation error for probably Chris not to get behind this album to the, to the point he could or not to support Michael with it or cultivate a, you know, I guess a, a better understanding of why he wanted to do it and, and, and help support it overseas because, if you think of it this way, right, Michael was always going to be the superstar. He was always the one who was international. As I think, you know, it's been mentioned, a lot of the other band members have really pretty much resided in Australia, you know, during their heyday. You know, Andrew was in London for a period of time. But if you could imagine, it's 1989, you're coming off kick, you've got Michael in America going across having the record company support, management support, not to at all interfere with an excess, but just elevate Michael into sort of the household sort of um, recognition factor that, you know, would have maybe helped X the album when they came back. It may have helped in excess by having Michael being more of a superstar in America uh, Mm -hmm. and more known in America Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, help the other band members when they got back together become a real juggernaut because, if you think about, you know, some of these, you know, bigger bands or some of these artists who are able to, you know, look at a guy like Chris Martin from Coldplay, you know, he's really well known in America. And it's not just because he married, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, but Chris has really cultivated a very big media awareness of him in America on behalf of Coldplay. And it's helped Coldplay have probably five albums that have done 8 million plus there. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's easy to, for me in the cheap seats 31 years later, to have a go at something like Chris or in excess management or whatever, but it is a bit of a like sliding doors moment, pardon the pun with Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's, yeah, but you, you've, you've got, 
like you've said, you've got time on your hands to think back on, on that. And, and Chris wasn't looking for the future of that. He was only looking at the future of in excess at the yeah. time, wasn't he? That's right. And allowing right. them to do that. It was Michael's money, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Um, one of the things, you know, was interesting was that, you know, with going over to sort of get involved there, it's not like that the album lacked material, lacked quality. Um, it wasn't a sort of a, a collection of bubblegum, poppy sort of songs. Uh, however, it did bridge that, that it had enough commercial sonic, you know, uh, appeal in the songs because mm-hmm. we all love them, not just because we like Michael, but the, the, the music was good enough yes. and it was quality enough. And it also, you know, bridged the, you know, some really artistic themes and some real risk-taking and some, some, some bravery on behalf of Michael and the songwriting and the recording that could have just, again, elevated, um, as I said, in excess post this coming out at the time I felt like a threat, but B, I don't really think it was a threat. And I think Michael's loyalty would have meant he was always coming back to the band. Yeah. He downplayed it quite a bit in a mm. way, but yeah. um, it, like you say, it would have been a continuity of it and, and maybe just a slipstream. Well, for them. the interesting thing is again, there was a period of time. If we think back to in excess in the eighties, you've got, you know, the swing coming out in 84, you've got listen mm-hmm. like thieves coming at the end of 85. You've got uh kick coming at 87 uh, and then you have this, you know, three gap to X. You know, as we've said before, a lot changes between the late 80s and the 90s and, and three years away. And albeit half of that 87 to sort of, you know, 1990 period was the kick tour and things. Musical tastes or, you know, when you're out of the spotlight in America for a couple of years, you know, people do jump off. And even though X was a very consistent, solid album in America going, you know, double platinum and singles in the top 10 or whatever, I just wonder whether it would have been actually more of a juggernaut if, you know, Max Q had been given that 1989, early 1990, you know, profile piece in America that had people going, wow, look at this. Oh, wow, there's another In Excess album coming. We can't wait for that. And um, remember the Beatles were putting out, you know, what they were putting out year after year after year. So I liken it to Duran Duran when they had their offshoot. Katie and Power Station or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they were great albums, both of them, but you knew they were going to get back together again. Well, but I think well, they needed to have that divide of, you know, one was like, like rock and the other one was artistic and then they had to come back again. Well, look, again, I think Michael was was such, you know, you look back at the interviews and he was such an articulate, charismatic, genuine, you know, uh, interesting person. Every lounge room in America could have benefited from a lot of Michael media coverage across America Mm -hmm. and, you know, after kick and keeping the band alive. Because I'm sure Michael would have been asked, what does this mean, Max Q for in excess? Michael would have been the first guy to say, you know, this is just me exploring an area of my personality. In excess mm-hmm. is great. That's my home base. You know, we'll be we'll be going back to record. You know, he was fiercely loyal. Mm-hmm. There's hardly any any. <laughs> I don't think there's any footage or press clippings of Michael uttering concern about his future in excess. Now, privately, yeah. he may have had that, but he was smart enough, and yeah. uh, I think um, uh, had the character of a person never to air his dirty laundry like about the band in public. Yes, and yeah, I, it's I guess that's sort of a bit of a sort of a bugbear in hindsight. Now, let's just put ourselves back in that particular period. You know, Chris, let's 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 jump on to, you know, devil's advocate for Chris. Chris has, you know, been an unbelievable um, ally to the band. He's, he's really helped shape them and pushed every particular person he's dealt with, probably in America, you know, to the nth degree. I've gone back this week and just researched a few interviews, you know, that Chris has done in the last sort of five, 10 years. And just to be sort of, I guess, put myself back in the mindset of Chris Murphy and, 
think I might have said before, you know, the, the Eagles, when they were inducted in uh, the Hall of Fame, Don Henley said, you know, Irving, you know, May, Mainhoff or whatever, he, he, he might have been uh, Satan, but he's our Satan as <laughs> in their manager. <laughs> and, and Chris, let, let, let me say this the, the, the kindest way I can. Chris was that necessary sort of British bulldog going in on behalf of the band dealing with record company execs who were coming and going, dealing with mm-hmm. labels that were either in and not, or, or not fully cognizant of supporting the band. Chris was such an aggressive guy to give in excess the floor and push airplay, push the concert tours, push the merchandising. He, you know, was the guy that laid the, found, the foundation and groundwork for the band to be able to go to America and these places, in England especially as well, to, to break through. I guess when Michael comes along, cuts the hair, puts glasses on and says, I'm going to Melbourne to record an alternative album. Yeah, it probably it's a, sort of, <laughs> maybe sort of. Well, it's a crack in, in an alliance, the pardon? alliance of keeping everyone together. He's, he, he, he delivered a package and the package broke up a little bit. He would have well, been panicking, I, guess I reckon. I, I, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, a, an actor, you know, when Russell Crowe sort of broke through with uh, Gladiator in America, he didn't rest. He went out and sort of put out a beautiful mind the next year and then probably would have won a second Academy Award in two years if he didn't sort of throw the, you know, the phone at somebody every one of his outrages. That's but, my neighbour you're talking about. Oh, right. Okay, Rusty. But, yeah, but look, Russell Crowe, I think, was was nominated for Best Actor three years in a row. I think the only guy in the modern era to do it, I think, for The, uh, for the Insider uh, and then for Gladiator, which he won, and then Beautiful Mind. And sometimes when you hit the zenith, Chris was probably concerned that, you know, it's not the time now to take a break. We're at the top. You're in the warehouse. Let's capitalise. Maybe, and I was thinking this earlier today, maybe it would have been smart for Live Baby Live, the live album, that took into account the kick tour. This is pre-Wembley. Maybe it been a good time to put a live album out in 1989 after yeah. the first 10 years. Yeah. And just have a filler album in between to sort of keep In Excess's name in the limelight if they weren't touring around 89, you know, uh, 1990 early. Mm. And that could have been sort of something there. Um, and yeah, I can underst- agree. I can understand why Chris saw Max Q as a threat. But I think in hindsight, you know, it's easy to sit here in the cheap seats. But, you know, Michael himself, I don't think was ever in risk of leaving the band. And I think there's the music industry is littered with examples of band members go after release solo albums and they're not necessarily doing unbelievable. I think, you know, this was just a, an artistic sort of tangent move by Michael to do something that he felt passionate about that probably grew out of, you know, the dogs in space era when he was working with Ollie and some of those guys. But at the end of the day, he didn't want it to be that popular, did he? He was just wanting it to be his, um, his take on music. You know, let's break it down a little bit what sort of occurred. You know, Chris okay. decided to not support the album really in terms of how he would an in excess album. Let's call a spade a spade. In America, he handballed a lot of the responsibilities to Martha Troop or Trout, depending on how you pronounce it, and she looked after a lot of the stuff in America. I don't know management also in America were that supportive of the album. I mean, it was released there through Atlantic or WEA. It was released in England through Mercury, which, again, these are the same labels in excess were on, but I don't think the labels were really supportive. Uh, in Australia, the album was released through CBS Sony, which was different to what NXS would normally release here. But I just don't think, you know, if Chris was behind it and management were behind it, you know, Michael would have been on every second TV show, yeah. on every second publication, whatever there. And it just didn't get that level of support. 
I think for Michael, you know, there's a lot of, you know, some old interviews of him going over there with Ollie on some of the TV shows and sort of helping plug it. Um, for those who don't know, Michael was a co-producer on the album. I think, you know, it goes to show that just how involved he was with Ollie in getting the sound together. I think not touring it as some sort of entity probably hurt as well because people were really interested in it, but if it's only a studio product, that, you know, there are probably plenty of people out there wanted to see it live. So it was never toured. There was never a single sort of concert play. Crying shame. <laughs> I know. I mean, it'd be great. Just some one f- concert would have been good, hey? It'd be great to have some footage of it. Um, yeah. I don't think Michael's intentions were at all to, to have it commercially driven because if he did, he probably would have pushed for it to be Michael Hutchins' solo album. And I don't know necessarily whether, you know, he was pushing for that. He was happy, you know, to name it, I guess, Max Q after Ollie's dog. Dog, um, <laughs> yeah. And from an album cover point of view, as I said, it's a bit of a composite of all the band members looking a bit like Michael with short hair, but obscure enough not to be Michael. Yeah, clever. And, you know, I think just in terms of the band dynamic, I get the feeling Andrew was a bit hurt uh, by it in the sense that Michael didn't communicate with him about it. I think Andrew might have woke up one day and turned on a Saturday morning Australian video show and there he's seeing sort of Michael doing the uh, Sometimes film clip uh, and going, oh, my God, like, uh, you know, what's going on here? I didn't know. And, again, for listeners to us today, there's no mobile phones back then. There's no Facebook, no social media, no presence. Etc. If you didn't turn the TV on at the right time, you missed something. Yeah. Um, and when the band went away for a year from each other, they went away from a year from each mm-hmm. other. They all went separate divergent ways and nobody necessarily needed to tell the other person, but maybe just Andrew felt a bit hurt that Michael didn't say, Hey, listen, you know, just so you're aware, I'm putting something out. I thought you should know because we're songwriting buddies, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that's Andrew's prerogative, but I don't know whether Andrew equally was that publicly supportive of it. And, I think, you know, Michael was got some support publicly from John and Tim in some ways and praise, but I don't know necessarily whether it was something where Andrew was a bit hurt by, you know, maybe it's something Andrew can clarify. Uh, I do know that he was asked about it in an interview that I remember very, very clear. And I, th- I think he was impressed by the, you know, the vocal stuff and the risk taking of the vocals that Michael did on the album. Yeah. So much so that he sort of said, well, why haven't you done that with excess before? And, I guess in a way, Michael's prerogative dancer was to go, well, listen, it's, it's my baby, you know. I've went off and done something and I'm taking risks, mm. you know, if I could be Michael's sort of <laughs> advocate on that one. But yeah. I think when they went back to X, I think Michael's never sounded better on an album vocally than X in terms of the falsettos and the high registers and the different things. And I reckon Max Q helped that a lot. Yeah, yeah. We've mentioned that before, haven't we? We should join hands and rise above what you album itself i think it was deleted b in the mid 90s so as we've talked about i guess is that you know we can't really just go down to the record store and buy it chris murphy what, what, what do you mean by deleted deleted means they just don't print it and make it again and, and keep it going um 
And I think, you know, MM, our friend uh, of the podcast, is pretty good on all of the comings and goings of, of product that gets deleted. Sometimes you just don't see that product in shops anymore. Like, I don't think you'll go into a record store or whatever in, in JB Hi-Fi and see Live Baby Live. You'll see Wembley because they they keep printing and re- releasing that. Mm. But the actual copy and the, uh, the, the album's been deleted. You, you won't see new copies come in. Um, but I, I put a bit of a challenge out to Chris Murphy on this particular podcast. And I, and I know Chris. Go do it. Well, I'm going to, okay, <laughs> uh, because there has been some discussion about, I think last year when the, when, the, when the miniseries was out about, you know, the Mystify album came out and there was rumours that there were, you know, you know, and Chris at the time said, oh, we want to get behind Max Q again and there's a lot of legal stuff involved and it's just difficult in the wrong time. But Chris when he came back about nine, 10 years ago to work with NXS and he wanted to turn the band into a brand. Mm-hmm. I think he essentially said, look, get out of the way of yourself. Stop trying to get new lead singers and tour and whatever. He paired them up with Matchbox 20, go out in big arenas. Uh, but let's just, let's get back to the Michael generation and, and the journey that you were on with him. And let's, you know, develop musicals. Let's develop a mini series. Let's develop, um, you know, new concepts, um, new reproductions of help, help podcasts, <laughs> new podcasts. Yeah. You know, let's develop new, um, uh, re, re, uh, engineering of, uh, live baby live at Wembley and let's go back through the whole collection and, and, and find what we can reissue. Let's, let's go back and uh, put something together. Well, as we know, In Excess's Diamond, very best of, you know, the rewarded album this week has sold over 500,000 copies. Yeah. Uh, it's no coincidence that there's a picture of Michael on the cover by himself, which is a bit odd when you think about it because there was all those issues about Michael being on the cover of Rolling Stone by yeah. himself. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Chris probably, who's like very, he's very hands-on with the way the publications and the issues looking. There was certain stuff that when he lived in the UK, I know, Chris didn't like some of the best ofs that he saw in record stores in Virgin Megastore in the UK. And was like, gee, that looks a bit yuck. I don't like that. And Chris is very hands-on with everything. I know last year when the, the Mystify album came out, he was very hands-on with Mark Edwards putting that together. And I think he even used his uh, sons and daughters and their friends as uh, modern day committee people to have a listen and, and, and put it together. I know there was a back and forth with Richard about the rights to songs and different things and, stuff like that and you know we all know that you know some of the max q stuff was in the uh in the movie which which richard sort of put out but my challenge to chris murphy on this is that if he really wants to get max q out chris can do anything mm-hmm. and i say that actually it's a compliment not as a threat or anything like that chris has basically had the best of album from in excess go diamond over five hundred thousand copies in a generation of the last 10 years when no one buys physical copies or down, uh, you know, they download things now, but people steal music. Yeah. So to have an album go diamond is a credit to Chris and his marketing and the way he, he put the mini series together and cultivated yeah. the album cover. Yeah. If Chris wants to have Max Q go out and I think, you know, 31 years later, correct the ills that happened at the time by not supporting it. I think the greater in excess community would be grateful for Chris to lead that way. Yes. Because this material and these songs deserve a wider audience again. And what's great about a lot of people who are listening to our podcast are coming back and saying, hey, I never listened to Johnson's Aeroplane before until you guys played it. Yeah. I never knew much about Welcome to Wherever You Are until you guys mm-hmm. talk about it. Yeah. And you know what, with Max Q, we put it on last week and the feedback has been fantastic. Amazing. So I asked Chris, Amazing. You, Chris, Chris, you can turn water into wine. 
Yeah. You, prob- you could probably get the world to love Nickelback, Chris. I really believe you could, <laughs> right? Chris is a, an absolute impres- impresario, Svengali, genius, one of the mm-hmm. greatest musical managers of his, of his era and of all time. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we really want Max Q to, to get life, it wouldn't be that difficult and it could, could definitely get the legs that it, that it should. Yes. So that's my challenge I'm putting out there. And uh, I hope if the, if the message does make its way north to Ballina and he hears this or knows of this, um, it's done with only the, the best of intentions. Yes, and we would support you even more with 100%. that record because we'll put, we'll put more out, more content on that, on that album. Yeah. So, Chris, please, please listen to us. Listen to your fans. And I had a bit of an idea with it too that, you know, for, for something that... Another actually, one. Well, <laughs> no, this, 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 it has this for an idea. Why not? Okay. Why not re, re, I said, you know, remaster uh, it, get it sort of digitally enhanced, update it all, and why not give a pro set of every album sale to Tiger? Yes. You know, why Good not? idea. You know, yes. why, why not turn around and use it as something as a as a, this is a gift to you from your father from the grave, without sounding sort of dramatic, but yeah. but you know, give it a, a life to itself, and you know, and make like, that public so we absolutely. all know that's happening. You, 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 mm. I don't know if you know this. This is a true fact. This I think this last week or two in England. I think it's either gone in the digital charts, it's gone number one, right? And it's an Australian artist. Do you know who it is? No, who? <laughs> this is going to freak some of the Aussie listeners out here, right? It's okay. a song called Live It Up by Mental as Anything. Really? Oh, yeah. There with the sad face. It's up for a football team, Correct. isn't it? Yeah. Celtic, I think it's Celtic Rangers have championed the song and they've had an online campaign. Yeah. And, and they've knocked Mariah Carey off the charts and the digital Amazing. downloads in England. Amazing. Yeah. Now that was that song hit number two in the UK in 1986-87 when it was on the Crocodile, Crocodile Dundee soundtrack. A few years ago, there was a fan campaign to get uh, Killing in the Name of by Rage Against the Machine to number one in, the, in England to make sure some pop star, whatever person, wasn't going to get it. And they succeeded. Oh, is that Absolutely. what they did? Yeah. You can, you can put out sometimes and wave the world be, okay, out now. And they're just as sonically relevant and lyrically relevant as they were 30 years ago. And now that you don't have to produce a physical uh, object or a widget to actually have music go out, it can actually be downloaded. It doesn't have to be tactile. It's not too difficult for artists to have songs re-enter charts. Like no. we think back to the miniseries in Australia within excess, we had about four or five singles go back into the top 40. Kick went back to number two. People were downloading a left, right and centre. It's really easy to get a song re-emerging into the charts. Definitely. You know, I think even in the UK recently, that um, Fleetwood Mac song went back into the charts because of the guy going around on the skateboard drinking the, the juice or whatever it was. There was that's some... it. With all these TikTok stuff and yeah, think, whatever. Yeah, and that's like you right. Sports, you could, you could easily get it out. 100%. But my, my sort of, you know, plea, I guess, is that, you know, wouldn't it be great for Michael, who's not here with us anymore, for 30 years later, have this album get a, a second life, a second kick, pardon the pun, yeah. and, um, you know, we give a proceed to Tiger. And, a bit of pocket money to Tiger. Yeah. Help you know, her with her musical career. 100%. 100%. Mm. Be great. I think, you know, one of the things that we will go to, as we sort of spoke about earlier in the podcast, uh, there's a little bit of a surprise. We won't mention it now, but there's going to be a little bit of a surprise to take us out about this album by a friend of the podcast, B. Yes, my big friend. Hi, this is Laurie from Chicago, and now it's time for Pleasure and Pain. 
All right, B's got the new ball for pleasure and pain this week, 1990. I did mine a couple of weeks ago, the, the good and the bad, over, a, I think, a two-week period. Uh, B, we've got your 10 good ones this week. We're going to, uh, I think, put the first five on and then have a chat and then put the next five on and have a chat. But is any any warning to the listeners out there before we throw Let's get your dance pants on. <laughs> How do you say? Do groovy? How do you say? De gorge! Ooh la 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 la. How do you say? Delight, 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 delight. Приступила к производству компьютеров персональный спутник. So we went in there with the first one, which is Delight and Groovies in the Heart. Oh, my God. This is a good song. I really, really like this. And I know it was one of Michael's favorite songs as well on the dance floor. It's a, it's a song that really got you up. And that this one just went across all the different um, genres of um, nightclubs. So you'd go to an alternate night and it'd be playing and you'd go to a, like, you know, a really cool um, club night and then you'd go to a dance night and it was always then. And also Snap. That was always going off in all the different clubs too. B-52s though. Yeah. 
Yeah. I must admit, I didn't know if I liked it at first, but I had I was living with my boyfriend at the time, and um, we lived across the hall from another couple, and um, it was a really hot summer, and she had her door open, and I had my door open, and I could hear this tune, and I could see she was, she was gorgeous. I wish I could remember her name, though, and she, there she was dancing around her, we call them flats in England, around her flat, and I was, and then I thought, what's that? And then she'd listen, and then before we knew it, we we were like partying and we were only kids at the time so that was but, yeah, but, that reminds me of that yeah, it's lovely i was coughing in sort of like in horror that you put love shack in there but it is your that is your wilson phillips that you know that is your hold on no, uh, no I, I get it because it really sort of grates on me a bit but it's got good memories oh, and i've I'm also the- had a recent nice memory with it but i can't tell you about that but it's very nice okay someone might be listening and they know about that too um, a dance, a, a, a dance killer. Wow, when that came out, that was pretty cool. Hearing that for the first time, I loved that. I played that a hell of a lot. What do you think of Vanilla Ice? I think of Queen. That's what I think of Vanilla yeah. Ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But once you get over it, it's a very cool tune. No, I'm not over it. Are you not? No, no. I do. No, I like it. No. I like it more. Do you actually. know why? You know why? Because he... Because it's a rip-off. No, when he got sued, he, he tried to explain in court that it was different. <laughs> <laughs> it's not different. Yeah. It's exactly the same. Well, this is what I'm saying. Like, it's like the Emperor's New Clothes. You know, does everyone think we're all delusional? You know, so, mm. Uh, mm. yeah, for me, that one. But um, that's your first five. Pretty interesting. Yes, my first five. Very okay, eight. clubby around that time for you, isn't it? I mean, I was I was like finding all different types of music. I was still into big band music as well, and Ella Fitzgerald, and sure. I was going to jazz clubs a lot as well. So I was really trying to find out what type of music I liked. But um, yeah, and then we'll open up with um, a couple of unusual songs okay, in so the next we're segment. We're going to go from six to ten right mm. now. I need a little time to think it over I need a little space just on my own I need a little time to find my freedom I need a little Uh-huh. 
I wouldn't say that I am a Madonna fan, but that song was pretty epic when it came out. I uh, remember, I remember talking to all my friends and we says, let's all go out dressed in white. And we vogued on the dance floor together. It was very cool. There was about six of us voguing. <laughs> I, um, can I just chip in on that one? I, I still like that song. And I think it's, that was sort of Madonna almost, she came off uh, cool. <laughs> like a prayer and then went into sort of Vogue, which was sort of a, an additional song in that Dick Tracy, I think soundtrack, but it was really good lyrics with all the female mm. artists referenced and just very stylistic. It was mm. not at a most stylistic best, I think. Very, very good. Very good. Now, do you remember the beautiful Sav? Yeah. Is a fat boy slim was involved with them and they were the house Martins as well. That, that's right. This was the other guy. Um, I can't remember his name. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, the beautiful Sav. Beautiful song. Loved that song. Really liked it. So that was my alternate side going back in. And yep. so with the Soup Dragons. You like the Soup Dragons, don't you? Well, it's a great tune. It is a, a, a Rolling Stones tune, but uh, they do justice to it, which is good. Mm, mm. It was a and they, good and they were, We spoke about them the other week. They're on the Wembley bill with In Excess. That's right. They were. Yeah. They were. And then the farm were very much like um, we were talking about them the other day. Oh my God, gone out my head. The Happy Mondays. They were in that sort of with the stone roses. And but um, the farm really liked that one. That was a cool song. No, they didn't make it here. I did not know them. Really? No. All the Baggy f- jeans and long blonde hair. No. Do 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 do. And the family stand. Pretty cool tune to go out on. Well, you seem very proud of those and uh, it's good that you are and I hope some listeners check them out because if you like them, some of them will like them too. Hey, it's Matt Dean from Wangaroda, Australia and you're listening to In Access, Access All Areas. This is Felicia Marie Carmadale, Rob B, well, we got to the end of episode 32. Uh, Max Q, we've delved deep, we've fleshed it out, we've, we've given it some presence. Over, I think it's over to the audience now to, to get this thing moving a bit. And um, uh, Can you download it these days? I mean, I don't know. Is it downloadable? What, the sometimes? The album? Yeah. No, no, no. But if we can like, if we can push for sometimes the uh, song, I've yeah. just uploaded it just, just okay. this second, okay. in fact, and um, yeah. I'm sharing it. I think, yeah, yeah it's the um, the Land of Oz remix I've yeah. just uh, downloaded. Okay. So get onto the um, our Facebook page, In Excess Access All Areas, and share the bejesus out of it. Why don't we do that? Why don't we see how many downloads we could get of the song sometimes over the next <laughs> couple of weeks? How, long, how much does it cost to download a song, B? You can't download it, darling. You just said you could download it. No, you can share it from the podcast. Oh, oh. Listeners, you're just seeing the difference between my technology prowess and these. crap. <laughs> <laughs> How many shares we can get on? We'll have, our, we'll have our own charts. We'll have the NXS Access All Areas charts. Shares. <laughs> shares. Okay. Fair enough. Hopefully by us, you know, dedicating to this, we're just adding a little bit of a, a trickle to a fountain that becomes an eventual sort of Niagara Falls of awareness of this album. And Murphy, please release it. Yeah. Hundred percent. All right. Well, let's flip over to the competitions. B, this is your wheelhouse. Uh, I know we've had a lot of people uh, really contributing and helping us with new patrons, helping us with 
referrals, helping us with uh, uh, people listening in and checking us out. Um, where do we sit with the comps and prizes and all sorts of stuff? Okay, so the the competitions that we've got, we've got Nick Egan's beautiful print of the alternate kick cover um, is up for grabs. We've got um, got two of those, haven't we? We've got yeah. one who can bring the most patrons to us and one who can bring the most listeners. You are all doing an amazing job. We've had this month alone, not this month alone, in the last 30 days, we've had nearly 300 new listeners. Wow. 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 So thank you, everybody. Thank you for sharing. That's been wonderful. Um, engagers, I'd like to um, just shout out to a few people. I've been meaning to shout out Big G. Do you know Giovanni? Do I know Giovanni? Um the name on our platforms You're, rings a bell. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's on every day posting yeah. in all the groups and yeah. he's, I call him Big G. Yeah. And um, Big G, big shout out to you, sweetie. You are brilliant at keeping um, Michael um, in all our news feeds. That's great. Um, Paul Woody, hi. And another Paul, Paul Boosie or Bossy. Yep. Probably bossy. Yep. Um, we've got um, Susan um, Justice Brando, and also there's um, Stephen Oliver and Elizabeth um, Isabel Felix. Yep. Hi, everyone. I'd like to say, say hi to you all. Fantastic. Um, all right. Well, you know, we are getting towards the end of this episode, but next week we will be putting out another new episode, uh, 33. But our topic next week, B, is dedicated to you. Maybe not you as the person, but you oh. as the name and the sort of shortening of your name. So we're going to be talking about Inexcess's greatest B-sides next Yay. week. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, not H-sides, but B-sides. So uh, uh, we encourage all listeners out there to uh, research your own B-sides. You know, you can post and whatever there. But we're going to come back with ours each. So I'm going to have my top 10. You're going to have your top 10. I will. And we are going to probably have crossover, but we don't compare until we really get onto the podcast. Nope. But it's going to be B-sides. <laughs> I can imagine this little B, but the B sort of flying around on the promo for that episode. <laughs> Yay, got yeah. my own episode at last. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> it's only taken 32, 33 weeks. All right, well, we're going to be going out with an outro today, B. that's not a tribute song or a cover. Um, no. It is, is actually going to be a spoken word exit, okay, today. <laughs> so it's going to be a little bit of a bonus um, add-on to this podcast. Carmen, if it's too long for you, just press pause. Okay. <laughs> We, on this particular outro, are having a friend of the podcast, Nick Egan, who has specially sent in to us just his uh, experiences with Max Q. Uh, and it's a, a beautiful little 10, 15-minute summary of just Michael, where he was at at the time, and Nick, who was very, very close to Michael. And I think listening to it again today, um, I think the sort of the adjective happiness, I think, yes. was what what Nick could sort of say about this period of time in Michael's life. Yeah. He was really um, happy. Yeah. It's a little beautiful sort of, I guess, bird's eye firsthand account of uh, Michael in this album being made uh, by Nick. And uh, for all of our patrons out there and any new patrons who do join us in the next seven days, Nick is going to be kind enough to come back onto a chat room um, forum to talk about, you know, Max Q and some of this stuff that he mentions here with our loyal patrons and our soon to be new additional patrons. 
um, over the next week. We will announce when that happens. But um, I guess as a bit of a, an exit from today, not so much a song, but uh, some really lovely words uh, from Nick. So it's a goodbye from me. It's a goodbye from B. Take it away, Nick. Um, worked with the five, six members of NXS. Um, it was a complete difference, obviously, working with two people, being Michael and Ollie, although there were seven in the band in total of Max Q. Um, the whole thing really started, for me, was the night that I was sitting at home in my house in West Hollywood here in Los Angeles with my girlfriend Stacy at the time, and... There was a knock at the door, which if you've ever been to LA, you'll realise it's quite an unusual thing to happen. People would just knock on your door. So um, I answered the door and there was this kind of, there was a guy standing there with this girl and I was like, took me a second and I realised it was Michael. He'd cut all his hair off and he was wearing glasses. And so I started laughing because I'm like, anyway, he came in and he, um, you know, he just talk, we talked about this, the solo record and, and how he had um, wanted to just get rid of that whole rock star, pop star image he'd had with In Excess because he wanted to move into a different direction with Max Q and it wasn't about him and he'd had kind of enough about being the front man um, and, um, and he just wanted to come out and be taken seriously. And I guess, and I guess this was a way of um, people taking him seriously in terms of um, uh, sort of an, an, and more of an academic approach to music, I would say. Um, but actually, Michael put it really well himself when he said that um, the difference between Ollie being from the very, very alternative world of Melbourne and Michael being very used to the, you know, 15, 20,000 people arenas and big sounds in the studio was they both wanted the opposite of what they were. So Ollie wanted the big... Michael Jackson kind of sound and, and Michael wanted the sort of more independent sound and, he, and he, Michael said that in a couple of interviews and I thought that was exactly what it was like um, and as ever you know Michael was, uh, immediately wanted me to do the cover and there was never any sort of discussion about anything else but that and I really liaised with Martha Traub who was ran the NXS office in New York and became a really dear and close friend and um, she loved Michael and she took the project on away from Chris Murphy because I don't think Chris Murphy really was that interested in doing it anyway but Martha was felt passionate about what Michael was doing um, and it started kind of in LA I think I met Ollie actually I'd met Ollie when we when NXS played the Wembley show um, because when we were going to the show Michael and the band had had these um, were to be given a limo each to drive to Wembley and Michael said the limo didn't fit all of his friends so Michael hired a um, he got Michael Long the tour manager to hire a minibus to, so he could fill his friends in which is so Michael to do that he didn't care about the limo so we got some 12 seat 12 passenger minibus and we went to um, we drove to Wembley with a police escort and you know and being English and driving up to Wembley and through the gates of Wembley is quite an, an impressive thing for me but um and Ollie was there with us on that 
trip and and while I was in London I kind of got to hang out with Ollie and um you know and Ollie was an incredible talent for for what for what he had but he had this tendency to not want to sort of uh, lose his credibility um, or sell out even though the side of him saw that pop star image of Michael and kind of liked it he was always questioning himself Ollie about the credibility that was of doing it Michael on the other hand wanted to be credible and I want to make this very clear because there's been a lot of misunderstanding about the six, the lack of success of Max Q definitely Chris Murphy wasn't that enthused about Michael doing a solo record he saw the dangers of Michael being successful on his own and therefore you know at some point possibly stepping away from NXS. So that was a bit of a concern uh, from from the NXS sort of brand. Um, and um, the record label, really, that, they weren't that keen on doing it either. They just saw that Michael now was one of the great rock stars of the of, of his generation. It was probably at the top of his trade at that point. And um, they just saw the name Michael Hutchins as being gold, and Michael didn't want his name on this record. And the reason I'm saying that is because everybody seems to think it was a failure. Well, Michael wasn't looking for commercial success. He wanted credibility. He didn't care how many records were sold because he'd sold millions and millions of records. That wasn't his motivation for it. He wanted to do something that he could exercise his own creative um, juices on, something that he felt much more part of than, than sharing it between six people that represented who he was much more than being in a band. And it had nothing against an excess. He still feels very connected to an excess. He just felt like at that point in his life, he wanted to make a different statement. And, you know, Ollie was the yin to Michael's yang. They were complete opposites in so many ways. I mean, you know, Michael had could afford the luxury lifestyle, whereas Ollie, um, you yeah, know, had been used to living in squats. In, in Melbourne and, and, and in London. Anyway, so it was important, Michael felt it was important that I got to know Ollie well, and I did. And and I really grew to be very fond of Ollie. I think I think he really put Michael and showed Michael a different perspective on things and showed him things that that Michael didn't do with Andrew. And not that's not to say that Michael's relationship with Andrew was not a good one. It was a fantastic one. It was a brilliantly creative one. But it was different. Um, and um, seeing the two of them together was almost kind of almost comedic sometimes because, you know, it all really started from from my point of view after Michael got to L.A. And Ollie, and after we'd been to London to the, to the Wembley show, and Ollie and Michael decided they were going to write some of the record in Los Angeles. So Michael actually rented a house on the beach that was owned by a woman that had a very sort of expensive clothing store in, in West Hollywood and he he rented a house and it's right on the beach in Malibu and um, and we had some great times there Rhett came over there um, Michael was kind of spending most of more of his time with Rosanna was his main girlfriend at the time aka Johnny um, and we had a lovely time together we went to some parties we had some really really good fun I remember Michael one day um, got up well, I stayed overnight there Michael got up and made breakfast it was beans on toast with caviar on top and he called it Rockstar's Breakfast which I thought was a great yeah thing he, he, Michael always saw the ridiculousness of what a rock star was and and the kind of he, 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 so he could he could mimic himself and make fun of himself because he saw he thought it was kind of in a way a preposterous thing there's this one person that gets all these people screaming 
And I think this Max Q thing was very much a way of bringing him back down to earth and let, letting go of the shackles of what people expected him to be. He did something completely unexpected. So a lot of things went on when we're in Malibu. And then I think then they went back to Sydney to record, which is when I went down to Sydney to do the cover. And I think, and I, and I shot it with Grant Matthews, I believe it was Grant Matthews who shot it again, who did the kit cover. And um, I'd had this idea when they said they're going to call it Max Q, named after Ollie's dog, Max Q, I believe was the reason. I thought, well, that's great. That's a, that's a character. That's a person's name. But there's seven of them in the band um, at that time. So how can I make it and take away the emphasis of it being Michael Hutchins' solo record? Because I knew Michael absolutely didn't want his name to be anything to do with that. So I decided to make this character called Max Q, who was made up of the seven guys in the band. And this was at a time when technology was changing and um, having done the kit cover pretty much with a with an X-Acto knife and, and spray mount and tape and sticking things down and moving them around again. Now there was a, there was a sort of a, 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 um, a computer called a Cytex machine where you could do all these things but through pixels on a computer monitor. Um, at the time, it seemed like a revolution, but every single thing you did took... 45 minutes every render you made took about 45 minutes anyway so I, I wanted to create this ominous character Max Q that was a little bit like the face in the movie 1984 that kind of was omnipresent and looked down and around I thought it was a really good way of equalizing everyone in the group so there was no one focus on any one particular band member and um Michael I, but I still even to this day I have to think about it but uh, Michael is the left eye of the face and I think Ollie was the right eye of the face. Um, anyway, so I went down, we did the photo shoot. Again, it was very similar to Kick because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I think that was a lot of that was Michael brought that out of me. Michael's confidence in me and, and belief in what I did really made me like, okay, this is what it's going to be. And I think he was, always, he was always sold on the passion that I had for what I did, that I really believed in this. And I had a lot of enthusiasm behind it. It wasn't just the case of, here's a few ideas, pick which one you like. It was definitely a case of, well, here's my main thing, this is what I believe, and here's a couple of options on it. But, but you know, with Kick and, and Max Q, it really was only one thing. And, um, and I think, and Ollie really related to that, and it had a kind of a sort of indie kind of alternative feeling to it. So um, that was the main influence on it, was that, was that kind of 1984... Uh, mixed with a police composite when you go and you try and describe somebody who you've seen committing a crime and you put a composite picture, they, they have various eyes. So I wanted to have that sort of ominous, almost criminality side to it of this face that was made up of different faces. And then, um, and the simplicity of it, I kept it very simple. And the idea of the simplicity came from the David Bowie uh, Station to Station cover, which if you look at it, you'll see and you'll recognise the typeface, um, and especially the way I did the track listing on the back of the cover. It's very simple, and it's just a track listing with no numbers on it. Um, and, um, you know, and then we, we did some group photographs, but I knew it was never going to be a group thing. And I went to New York to sort of present these ideas when they were mixing with Todd Terry up in, in I can't remember the studio, but Michael had rented a, an apartment in New York, and Rhett was there. And, I, and I've got to say, Outside of the time I spent with Michael in the south of France at his house in Rockford-le-Pan, um, 
those days in that, 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 that period of making Max Q was a great, it's it some of the happiest times I spent with Michael. I think Michael was in a great mood. Um, he was, he was feeling that he was getting what he wanted to get done, having spent so many years with the band. And again, I want to stress here that even the band was never in question at this point. That came a lot later on. But at this point, he loved the band and, and um, was excited about making a new record. The disappointing thing from his point of view was the band didn't have the same enthusiasm for the record. And I think a lot of damage was done on that. I think John and Tim were the only ones that really listened to it. Andrew didn't even listen to it and never even mentioned it. And I think that really hurt him a lot, that these, um, these guys that he grew up with didn't really take any interest in the record itself. And that may have been a little bit of jealousy or, or whatever it is, of, or, or, or Chris Murphy may have perpetrated some kind of like idea into their head that this wasn't a good thing. Um, but those times in New York, we had a great time. We went out a lot. We We kind of... You know, drank and had went to parties, and and a, a lot of that comes out in the record. That 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 vibrant feeling of that record certainly was evident from my point of view, having been through it from the from the very early stages of writing, through to the to the recording, and then finally to the mixing in New York. So I was actually in London when they got together. Then I was in um, LA when they started to write, and I was in Sydney when they were recording, and then I was in New York when they were mixing. So. That since the very early days of working with punk bands and with, when I worked with Dexys, Minute Runs and Bow Wow Wow, well, I was really at the beginning of every single part of the from the recording process all the way through. I definitely had that with Max Q, and what that gave me was the the complete like it was almost like being in the band where you feel like you're part of the band, you're part of the creative uh, um, uh, openings of of what the songs were about, what the vibe was between the two main characters um michael and ollie didn't always see eye to eye and it was a kind of you know because of their different statuses in the music business but there was a great bond between the two of them and i think i think ollie challenged michael to push him into different areas that he was less comfortable with um and so i always look at max q the opposite of what most people think. They think, oh, it was, a, it was a failure. Well, I don't think it was a failure. It certainly wasn't a failure to Michael. What was a failure was the lack of support it got from the record label and from management. That was a failure. And, you know, and I was really, I, I thought Michael was really brave for not having it, the Michael Hutchins solo record. It was, I thought it was brave that he did that. He could have cashed in on that and he didn't do that. He wanted it to be taken seriously as a, as a piece of art. So um, basically, like I said, some people look at it as, as, a, as, a, as a failure, and I always look at that whole time in Michael's life as being a success. I mean, I was also working with Kylie Minogue through that period, and Michael was going out with Kylie, and Michael came with me to when we did the photo shoot with Kylie. When he came to LA, we drove out to the shoot together, and, and he really enjoyed it. And I was also working with Delight. I just worked with Delight, and Michael was really into Delight. So Michael was actually around me a lot through a lot of the creative um, process of what I was doing. And he got much more involved in it, became much more part of it than he had done with In Excess. He had the time, first of all. And that is an enjoyable period of, of my friendship with Michael was through that area. And there you go. That's about all there is on um, Max Q. 